trying to brew coffee over a campfire in the morning and it wasn't working well there were also it was us and another family and there were lots of kids and we wanted to make hot chocolate for the kids it was a cold morning and so as soon as I figured out the coffee wasn't going to work I'm like well I'll just have a beer then it's the same you know it's (laughs) it's it's liquid (laughs) it's flavorful as opposed to water and do you remember that uh I actually I don't I'm not surprised Maybe I just pushed it out of my mind. I just think it's hilarious. Like, I was such an egomaniac, so arrogant when I was drinking that, I don't know, I thought I had an answer for everything. So, it's not, I'm not drinking beer at 9 o'clock in the morning because I'm an alcoholic. I'm drinking it because there's no coffee. I mean, what else do you do if there's no coffee? You got to drink So, I assumed that meant that I didn't have any coffee either because you kind of gave up. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I probably had hot chocolate. You, you didn't have a beer? No. Weird. You are such a weirdo. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about the ego and arrogance of alcoholism. And I want to get your perspective on some things, Sherry. But before we do, I am excited to tell our listeners about an event coming up this coming Thursday, May 14th at 6 o'clock p.m. Mountain Daylight Time. The Sober Evolutionaries Mocktail Roundtable. This is really cool, Sherry. This is a bunch of people locally here in Denver that I've been hanging out with that are in different ways and shapes and forms, really impactful, sober badasses in our community. Um, we've, we've got Emily Schrader, who runs uh, Bar Zero, which is a, it's a nonprofit Right now they're a catering company, but eventually there'll be a bricks and mortar bar and restaurant where all the beverages are zero proof beverages, but they're really fancy. And so part of this mocktail roundtable that we're doing, Emily is providing mocktail recipes for people who register. And so Emily and I and several others that are in this um, sober sober community, these other sober badasses that I'm friends with, we're going to talk about lots of Lots of things. We're going to talk about the lockdown. We're going to talk about socializing, sober, insecurities and instincts, which is a big topic of mine right now. And it's going to be a really good time. We started this in December. We had our first live in-person event. And we, as soon as humanly possible, are going to do another live in-person event here in Denver. But in the meantime, we want to kind of bridge that gap with... um, with with this Facebook Live or Zoom or... Yeah, well, it'll be through Zoom, but you do have to register. It's free, but you do have to register Mm -hmm. so that we can avoid the Zoom bombers who, you know, when you just put your Zoom link up publicly, that's that's turning out to be a bad idea. Yes. So you have to register. When you register, you get the recipes and you also, um, you also, the, the mocktail recipes, and then you also get the Zoom link. And to register, just go to our Sober and Unashamed Facebook page. And we're doing lots of advertising on there. And we can link you to the Zoom register there. So Sober and Unashamed on Facebook. It's going to be a really good time. Um, Anyone who participates, 
Um, you know, it'll be it'll be us in the roundtable talking about stuff, but you can put questions in the chat if we're not hitting the topic you want to hear, and we'll certainly address that as we go along. So we hope people will register for that. And you said that was Thursday, May 14th? Yeah, it is. Thursday, May 14th, 6 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time. Awesome. We'll go for about an hour. I know we're all, we all have Zoom fatigue from doing all this virtual stuff, so it's not going to be forever long. But hopefully this one will be fun, and hopefully you've got a delicious mocktail in your hand while you're watching. Yeah. So back to my arrogance and my ego in, in drinking when I was a drinker. It's, it's very interesting to me. It's becoming really clear that alcohol hides our insecurities. It's such an immediate um, solution. It's not a solution at all, but it feels like an immediate solution when we start to feel bad about ourselves, when we start to worry about something. Boom, take that first drink and the, uh, the huge ego and the arrogance comes out and all the insecurities are solved. It's, it's so counterintuitive. When, when I quit drinking, I actually had something to be proud about, right? I mean, I was uh-huh. in sobriety and I was healing and trying to do all the right things and take the right steps. But that's actually when the shame just piles on, man. You feel guilty about the time when you were drinking and you feel as guilty, or in my case, I would say even more guilty about the fact that you're the only one of your friends who can't drink responsibly. Or you think you're the only one. You think you're the only one. That's right. Certainly you're not. We know that. The statistics prove that. But it feels that way. And so you've got something to be proud about. You're doing the healthy thing and taking control of your life back, but you're full of shame. But back when your life was out of control... You were full of ego and arrogance. And so what I want to talk about with you, Sherry, is when when I want to talk about what your perception of me was that's so drastically different than what my own self-perception was when I was a drinker. When I was a drinker, I thought I was on top of the world. You know, career was good. Family was beautiful. Had it all figured out. But to you... I was frankly repulsive, right? I mean, I I smelled like whiskey or beer. Uh, my drunken behavior was fairly unattractive. I was pretty moody and I was wasting our money. I mean, those are four fairly repulsive characteristics. Um, wouldn't you say? Like, did, I, I was not a turn-on for you. I mean, I'm not talking about the beginning when we were both drinking in college. I'm talking about later... In life, when I was supposed to be a responsible adult, and things were going going south fast. Yeah, yeah, those were big turnoffs. What was your favorite of those? My favorite. Um, your most repulsive. I guess what it was just. The most repulsive I guess it just depended on what was going on. Okay. You know, like if we were supposed to be having, if we were lucky enough to get away for the weekend. Or we were going to go do something with a f- his friends and we didn't have the kids with us. Get away for the weekend? You mean like go camping where I could drink beer instead <laughs> of coffee? No. No, I mean like with our bakery business we had conventions or occasionally you and I would just go away for the weekend. Like we went skiing a couple times without the kids, especially when the kids oh, were right. younger. Yeah. You know, that sort of stuff. But then it always became this like booze fest for you. It was like, oh, nobody's watching and I'm going to drink as much as I want and... Like, you know, you didn't, like, I I know that you confessed to me one time, like, when we went skiing, we stayed in a town that was about 15 to 20 minutes away from where we were skiing, and we had to drive, 
because we had went right to the mountain, skied, and then went to our hotel. And you were like, yeah, I shouldn't have been driving. Like, this wasn't later that weekend or even later on. It was much later on. And I was like, you know, you you drove when you knew that you shouldn't have been. You acted like a buffoon. And then you would just say inappropriate things. So that was a favorite that every time we went away together or there was a vacation, it was just like no holds bars for your alcohol consumption because it's vacation, it's party time. Not considering that our vacation sometimes had our kids and our family that I felt really uncomfortable and embarrassed like to see you drink that much. It made me feel like I had some responsibility to take care of you and make sure you weren't drinking too much. But then I had the responsibility of taking care of the kids because I didn't think you were very reliable. Well, but even back to the times when we got away, just the two of us, I mean, talk about repulsive. One of the goals should be, I would think... When a couple gets away, when a couple that's busy and has, you know, the normal stresses of life like family and jobs and keeping up the house and everything, when that couple gets away, hopefully they're taking time to work on the relationship. Even if it's not, I'm not talking about work on the relationship. Like, let's sit down and write down all of our feelings. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying, let's reconnect, get along. Let's reconnect. Let's, Let's enjoy each other's company. And, you know, for me, it was... No, what we're going to do is drink as much as we can fit into our body. And also to that, like, if you had a plan in mind or what your vision was or your idea or your thoughts, like, they hardly ever were considerate of me. Oh, yeah. Like, it was all about, like, I mean, where I, we can go next to drink. And, and you would be like, well, I'm just trying to entertain you. Well, that's right. I, I, I can just sit here on the porch well, that, that, and, you know, That and goes just back talk. to the ego and the arrogance. I yeah. thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I was entertaining you. I thought I was making sure that we weren't bored. Mm-hmm. But yeah. And then you would be really drunk and then you'd be like disappointed because we wouldn't have had this nice, intimate sexual relationship. And I was like, how can we, you've just turned me off all day long and all night long. And you say inappropriate things or you are embarrassing to me in public at times. And then that just spiraled into all these arguments, you know? Yeah. So that was one or like, the fact that, like, sometimes you you mentioned, like, four different things, and I said, you know, which of my favorites, and I said season, and I remember, you know, the bakery wasn't performing, and we had some really tough years, like, during the recession, and you decided just to drink cheap beer, because that would be your contribution to the family budget that then declined, and I still had my budget that had to cover everything, and your cheap beer only made you drink more, because it didn't have the alcohol content that you were used to but you acted like it was the most sacrificing thing in a way and I remember you like asking me about the gym membership that we had and that was a place where the kids could go and have fun it was a family membership for like 70 bucks I could exercise they were all taken care of they even could do some swimming sometimes or gymnastics and you were acting like my 70 dollars a month was this huge deterrent well think how many more things 30 packs of PBR I could buy with your $70. Yeah, exactly. So I was like, oh my God, so you're taking away all of our family's entertainment, our children and your wife's entertainment. Now, I will say that you did realize when I laid out like how much that was a good thing for our family because we were cutting out some other things like Zoom memberships and, you know, and it was in the summer. So you did realize that that was very wholesome for the rest of the family, not just you, but... 
I would be like, oh I my. I would have shared my PBR with the kids if, <laughs> if it was that important to you. No, I wouldn't have, actually. No. And not because I'm a good father. I just wouldn't have shared. That's pretty horrible. Horrible. What about the... Uh, I know you were particularly fond of when <clears> I was in a... This is your earlier. We were younger then, but when I was in a Scotch and Cigar Club. Uh-huh. You loved that smell when I would come oh, home. Oh, because right? it was fantastic for our 300 square foot condo <laughs> in Chicago, downtown Chicago. Oh, God. Like, if you could have slept in the vestibule of the building, I would have made you. And you probably wouldn't have cared because you kind of could pass out anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> but that was, yeah, that was charming because, you know, all the big, heavy winter coats and wool suits and stuff that you had for business, they didn't stink at all. Yeah. So that was really a big deal. Yeah, so there I am feeling pretty proud of myself, feeling all arrogant and ego-filled as this smart, funny, whatever, you know, intelligent, charming charming drinker, and all I'm doing is being repulsive to you. So that's, that's one aspect of it. I thought I was great. You thought I was repulsive. I also thought I was smart, and you had to, to some degree, I mean, we've talked about this, you, you thought I was pretty stupid. You... You looked at drinking as something you do in celebration. So the weekends, especially when we were younger, the weekends seemed like a good time to drink. But I would drink every day after work. And you had to it's, you know, just start to think, God, how stupid is this guy? I mean, this is not only is this not normal, but this isn't helping the old IQ. This isn't helping with work productivity or uh, making a good impression on the people around him. I mean... That's harsh for me to say that you thought I was stupid, but I think to some degree well, you, you thought, questioned my intelligence. Well, I, I definitely thought that you were smart. I thought you made very terrible choices and decisions. And then as the drinking went on and some of the things you said and to justify your drinking are like I thought, wow, he's just really messed up. Like this is not right. And then I really began to question your intelligence. Yeah. Thinking, if how could an intelligent person continue to drink like this when they see how it affects the other people in their lives? Yeah. So I thought, wow, he's just selfish, arrogant, because he thinks he knows it all, which that's something that came out even more, like, tenfold when you were drinking. I remember one time, like, there was a conversation and somebody was listening to you about business and it was when we owned our own business, and I interjected something, and then later on in the hotel room, you're like, listen, they're not here to listen to you. They're oh, here was, to listen to me. That was cruel. That was very cruel. And looking back, I only blame the alcohol, but you you just thought that you were so charming, and everybody wanted to flock to you, because we were doing things a little bit different in our business than a lot of the franchise wanted us to do. But I just thought, wow. like Yeah, I remember saying that. That was... Just an awful, horrible, inaccurate, and cruel thing to say that I felt terrible. I felt terrible about that in the moment. And you know it was bad if I felt bad about it in the moment. Yeah. But. Yeah, I just, I mean, I just, that's where I started to question your intelligence. Your emotional intelligence. Yeah. Not your, like, financial or business sense or, but that emotional intelligence was like, wow. How can he, like, continue to hurt Himself and our family by his drinking and by his behavior when he's drinking. Because I hadn't really understood, like, how alcohol, like, and alcoholics really function. Yeah. I just thought it was, you're selfish, you love the way it makes you feel, you're going to do anything you want to do. Yeah. 
and well, screw everybody else. Well, I even now, you know, with years of sobriety and so much has changed in my life and the way I look at things and the way I process information, I even look at now people who drink, even just moderate drinkers, and I know um, this sounds so judgmental. I guess, well, I guess it is judgmental, but I look at just moderate drinkers and I think, God, they, these people think this is such a, it's adding to their life when they come home and they have their two two cocktails after work every day. Or a and, couple and glasses I, of wine every night. And I just know that it's not. I know that it's 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 a poison in any quantity and it's hurting them. It might be hurting them slowly. It might not be causing major turmoil in their life, but they're, it's not allowing them to reach their potential. And I think, man, these are some, what, what I consider really smart people that I look up to and I admire, but they could be so much more. Mm-hmm. And so I don't necessarily think those people are stupid, but I don't think they are what they could be. And I mean, when I put that through the lens of what you were going through with me, with the amount that I was drinking and the frequency that I was drinking, I mean, you had to just be like, oh my God, how did I hitch my wagon to this loser? <laughs> I mean, it had to be awful. And so there's the repulsiveness, the just grossness of it for you. Then there's the questioning my intelligence part of it. But then there's another thing. All this time where my ego is huge and I'm arrogant and I'm feeling so good about myself, I think I'm strong. I mean, I think that I'm, I'm working these long hours and I'm just pushing through any kind of frustration or exhaustion. And I'm so proud of myself for my strength. But you... And, and and I know you know that I worked long hours and you appreciated that, but but you still had to think, God, this guy is so weak. Because for 10 whole years prior to me finding permanent sobriety, I kept trying to quit and relapsing. For 10 years, I did that. So you got to be thinking, this guy's not strong. This guy's as weak as they get. I mean, you and I have learned yeah. a lot and we know that it's not a willpower game. We know that there's neurological damage done. But at the time, I, all we knew was willpower. And you must have thought, this guy's got none. Uh, no, I, I, I don't think I really questioned the willpower part of it. I just questioned when you would go back to drinking, I just questioned, aha, he loves it so much more than me. And that's what he wants. He wants those feelings. Because I've, I'd seen you lose weight. Um, you know, I'd seen like, that's where I feel like your willpower I didn't question your willpower. Like, if you decided you were going to eat this certain way, like back when the fat-free stuff was all the rage, mm-hmm. you know, you lost weight because you had put on quite a bit of weight, and then you exercised twice a day because you worked from home a lot of the times. So those times that you worked from home, you know, you exercised twice a day. So I didn't think of it as a willpower. And, like, with quitting smoking, like, you had quit smoking once before, like, after college, and it didn't bother you. Like you had no real issues with it. And we even still went out to bars where still um, smoking in bars, and all of our friends were still smoking and drinking after college. And um, so I seen you quit smoking, and I guess it was never a willpower thing. It was a your love for alcohol and my disregard. Because you didn't really see it as a problem, or you didn't share with me early on. As much of a problem. But what about like, when I was trying to quit and I couldn't? What about when I would relapse? I just felt like it was like, <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe willpower is it. I just felt like, I just felt like 
you were still so in love with it, and you didn't really see it as as big of a problem as I did. Because that, that would be the that would be the excuses when you would start to drink again. You're like, I've got a new plan. Yeah. This is my new plan. This plan is going to work. How many of this those? This is what. Yeah. This is you know. This is why we're doing this because I can control it. Okay. So, I mean, we, that must have felt awful to to look at it and say, "Oh, he's going back to it," and not, you know, I thought of it as you thought I was weak. So he's going back to it, not because he's weak, but because he loves it. He loves it more than me. He loves yeah. it more than anything. And usually, like, there would be a situation where it had gotten tense between us or an argument had happened or you were under a lot of pressure or you were in an environment where you normally had drank. So you would give in. And I felt like, you know, you just thought, well, I'm smarter than all this. And you would also, you know, kind of promote that got a new plan. This one's going to work. I'm smarter this time. I'm going to be a moderate drinker. I'm only going to drink socially or So so when I would do that, you know, you felt like kind of the other woman, right? I mean, it's we've talked about the fact that it's almost a betrayal, and I don't mean to compare it directly, I guess, to infidelity because that's something you and I've never experienced and so we're not really qualified to talk about that. But it's it's a betrayal-like thing when mm-hmm. I'm choosing alcohol over basically over you and the family, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so here we are. I'm thinking I'm on top of the world, you know, big ego, lots of arrogance, and you are repulsed by me. You think you're questioning my intelligence, and you don't. You know, I was mistaken there. You don't think I was weak necessarily, but you. You feel betrayed by me, like I'm, I'm choosing to go back to alcohol yet again. And when I did quit the final time, the time that I'm, you know, the permanent sobriety that I'm in now, or even for some of the other longer terms, the couple of times I went six months, the time I went nine months without alcohol, but then ultimately relapsed and went back to drinking. Any of these times when I had a, a months and months period of sobriety, your opinion of me, it didn't immediately change. Like, just because I quit drinking, you didn't suddenly stop being being repulsed by the fact that I was moody and I had wasted so much of our money and my drunken behavior. You didn't suddenly think I was intelligent just because of all the stupid things I had done when I was drinking. And you certainly didn't suddenly immediately get over the betrayal. Mm-hmm. So a lot of your behavior... A lot of your attitude toward me, your reactions to the things I did, when I was in early sobriety, they were typical of those bad feelings that you had for me that I had earned, man. I mean, it was it's on me. I'm, it's my fault that you felt that way, but I couldn't see that at the time. The, the point I'm making is I go into early sobriety and I just think you're a bitch and you know, you're not excited that I'm sober. I mean, you're you're glad, but you're, I think, cautiously optimistic is probably the best way to put it. But you're not going to let your guard down. You're not going to throw me a parade and, and, you know, say, wahoo, it's over. Our life is perfect now. Yeah. You've still got the resentment, the lack of trust, and all these memories of the ways I repulsed you and was unintelligent and betrayed you. And... 
you know, I, I'm looking at you like, God, what does it matter with her? I quit drinking for you, Sherry. I've said that so many times, you know, what more do you want from me? And, and so in my mind, I, what have I done? Oh my God, what have I done? I'm married to a bitch. Mm-hmm. It didn't occur to me that your reaction was a natural reaction to what I had done. And that carried on for a long, you know, a long time. I mean, I would say most of the first year of my sobriety. Yeah. Um, because you weren't in any position to let down your guard or or dismantle the the protection that you had built for yourself just in case I relapsed and started drinking again as I had done so many times. I think some of our extended family, but the people that we're close with kind of felt that way too. It was like... Well, you know, we'll flip a coin and see if he's going to drink or not drink this time when we see him yeah. at this annual event or whatever. I think that we all kind of, at that point, had really kind of been like, well, you know, we'll see how long this one lasts. Yeah. And, um, but I guess, like, I also didn't quite understand the addiction side of alcohol because, like, after we've discussed, like, I don't get the feelings that you get. When you were drinking. The euphoric feeling. Yeah, like that immediate first drink. Like, I don't get all tingly or I don't wait in anticipation. And, yeah, I mean, there have been plenty of times even after, you know, we've had kids and we've gone away and I've drank and drank until I was drunk. And um, then I always woke up with a hangover. So there was always that, ugh. Like, why is this so fun? But also I drank fruity mixed drinks. Well, but that's just another example of how... In that time, in, in my early sobriety, that first year, that's just another way that you thought I was, I don't know, stupid, right? I yeah. mean, you just, you didn't understand it. Yeah, because I didn't realize that, <clears throat> you know, that The feeling, neurological change. Or that, the, you know, that you're it. like, yeah, that you're like, oh, this is just such a relief. Yeah. Because I felt like, oh, a bath would be such a relief. Yeah. Like, that would be, <laughs> you know, that would be good enough for me. But so, so then this kind of awakening happened, and I, I can't pinpoint it, and I don't think it happened overnight. I think it happened over a long period of time. But slowly, I started to open my eyes to the fact that you're not a bitch. Your reactions, your hesitancy, the resentment that you were feeling, the, the fact that you could still fly off the handle pretty easily you know kind of at the drop of the hat that you were very cautious around me that you weren't excited and exuberant about my sobriety you were you know always worried that it was that it wasn't gonna stick all of that um i you know i had this awakening to the fact that that was natural and that that was the result of my disease that you weren't an evil, mean person. This, this, you were just like my brain handled a highly addictive substance exactly the way it's supposed to. I mean, addiction is a, a natural reaction to heavy doses of addictive substances. So just like my brain wasn't wasn't behaving improperly, it it got warped and hijacked by an addictive substance. You were reacting in a normal way. Your all the changes in your personality were because you thought I was a repulsive human being, you questioned my intelligence, and you felt betrayed. And if you do those three things to a person, 
they're, they're not going to be the most fun person to be in the room with. And so it, it was a huge awakening for me to recognize that. And one of the ways that that kind of was manifested in, in our day-to-day reality was when we went through all the resentments of the past. It was not enough that I had apologized for my drunken behavior the morning after the drunken behavior because because I was still drinking, you knew that the opportunity for that drunken behavior to repeat itself was right there. I, I mean, you knew it was guaranteed that I was going to behave that way again. So when I was in long-term sobriety, <clears throat> after a year had passed, we sat down and went through all those resentments and it gave me a chance to apologize for them under the condition that I wasn't going to behave that way again because now I was sober. And so that apology was more impactful to you. But even more than that, one of the things that you've shared with me is that the acknowledgement was a big deal. The fact that that I, I admitted that your pain was real, that I didn't argue with you about the details, the fact that if you said it happened this way and this is how it made you made you feel and this is the what it did to the family and how it made you repulsed repulsed by me and made you question my intelligence i no longer argued with you and said oh it wasn't that big a deal like i i said yeah i see it i see it and that was big 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 for our relationship um can you talk a little bit about how how that acknowledgement of reality what that did for you? Um, well, like you said, you know, your apologies while you were still drinking didn't really matter because I knew it was going to happen again or something similar. Um, and I guess it was like after a while when I had seen you not drinking, I felt like you were able to accept, um, hearing all the details about how it affected me and how it affected our household because I know that you had been in denial a little bit acting like the kids hardly knew anything that was going on but there was a lot more that they were aware of and how you just this stuff just kind of you know put this bad feeling in our house a lot of times so um I felt like you I needed to say it and you needed to hear it and I needed you to know and understand and comprehend that it was not a pleasure. And how, you know, how hurt and disgusted and irritated and disappointed and let down I had been. Because I don't think that any other point you would have been able to recognize that. So I think doing it later on, definitely, when I felt like I could trust myself to say that to you. And I felt like I could have your trust in listening because a lot of times when we talked about things that happened the next day or the day after an argument or a bad night of drinking you I don't think believe me I think you thought I blew everything up out of proportion 100% and, I believe you know it was all my fault I must have incited the well, argument and even when I didn't think it was your fault I definitely thought you were blowing it out of proportion and like my, I didn't think it was as yeah. bad as you were saying it was yeah so yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think the the fact that I had to have this awakening before we could go through 
those resentments and I could believe the truth that you were telling me. I think that's a really kind of fundamental point that gets often missed in, in situations like this. Recovering an alcoholic marriage is, I think, the hardest thing I'm ever going to go through. It's certainly the hardest thing you and I have been through to date. And a huge component of it is recognizing that truth, acknowledging that the disease is what's to blame, not necessarily the people that are just pawns in the game, more or less. Now, that's not to say that we don't have to take responsibility. We have to take responsibility for the things that we've done. And I apologized ceaselessly to you. But that it, it still was important for you to recognize that that wasn't me behaving that way. That was the alcohol talking. And equally important, this is, this is the piece that most people miss, I feel like. Equally important for me to understand that your bitchy behavior was the result of the alcoholism too. You weren't born that way. You didn't come into the relationship that way. The alcoholism made you that way. And so when I didn't feel supported or I felt like you were short-tempered, that, you know, that's not an excuse for you either. You've got to go get recovery. You've got to work on that and fix those problems. But just the understanding that that's a naturally occurring response to heavy alcohol abuse by someone you love, that... That was huge. And that's the piece that I think is missing. And so our message, I think, to people who are newly sober or people who love someone that's newly sober is that all of all of the, the garbage, the collateral damage that's still there that you still have to work through, that's normal. And the sooner that the drinker that's now in sobriety can release this belief that everything is suddenly their spouse's fault, the better off they'll be. What's really common, you and I hear this all the time, and it's certainly what happened in our, our relationship. I looked at getting sober as such a difficult thing that as soon as I started to have even just some minor success as far as time is concerned in sobriety... I went, you know, I did my part. I fixed that. I got sober for you. What more do you want from me, Sherry? Everything else is you. If you're still angry, that's you. If you're still frustrated, that's you. And so I, I think if that's not the main reason, it's one of the main reasons that relationships fail, that marriages end in sobriety, that you go through 20 years of alcoholism, active alcoholism, and you figure out how to survive that. And then you get sober, and the, the, the drinker has to do all this work on sobriety, and it's all about fighting temptation, learning about brain chemistry, and all the stuff. And it's not immediately perfect, and they go, well, that's that's got to be you then, because I fixed me. Mm-hmm. And if, if you're still a bitch, then I don't want to be married to you. Yeah, I think you're right there. Like, because, you know, when alcohol gets involved or anything that's, um, you know, detracting from the marriage, any kind of addiction, like it just changes how the relationship was supposed to be. 
and it changes the people in the relationship. It does. It's not unlike physical abuse or yeah. or infidelity or uh, or you know if, if a trauma of the something awful like the death of a child. I mean, yeah, these things change people. Yeah, and alcoholism t- does too. And just because you stop drinking doesn't mean you change back. Exactly, because I mean you changed this like you both have changed in so many ways and maybe you're not even the same people that you started out being together maybe you were like us well we drank I didn't drink together like I didn't drink as much as you and your friends because um, I like I said I got hangovers and I didn't enjoy it but like that was your per- and I always felt like that was your perception of me that I was this party girl and I really didn't want to be I just you know so but we're different yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. You don't go back... Like, you can never... When you take the alcohol of the relationship, you can't go back to the way it was before. For a couple of reasons. For most people, for us, alcohol was always there. So there was no before the alcohol. I mean, before the alcohol, we didn't know each other. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons. But the other reason is you're a different person. You're a permanently different person, and I am a permanently different person after the effects of alcoholism. And so... There's no going back to the people we were before alcohol because those people don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Now this, I feel like we've we've gone negative and I don't mean to because it can be a really beautiful thing. I mean, I feel like the, I keep using the word awakening, but the, the things that I've learned and realized in long-term sobriety, it, it's really, I mean, sometimes when I write, I write about enlightenment. And then I'll get blowback that that sounds really arrogant to use the word enlightenment. That I sound like, you know, I'm acting like I know stuff that other people don't know. Well, I do feel that way. I feel like there's billions of drinkers in this world who don't know, you know, what I've learned through recovery. So I guess there is some some arrogance to it. but Or even like moderate drinkers on both sides of the relationship, the, the female and the male, they don't probably have a great relationship as well, they could be. Like, right. I feel like you and I like have taken a long time doing talking and me being trusting and opening up to you and having to work through some of these issues and struggles and realize like what stuff I brought into the relationship and what stuff just by your drinking exaggerated those insecurities or issues I had. So I think if you're just kind of moderately drinking and just being surface level, you don't have that intimate, soulful relationship. Well, the other thing is I don't think when you're when you're drinking moderately or heavily, I don't think you can hear your own instincts. You can hear your own intuition. And I, I think, you know, I think people are good. They're good-natured, good at heart. And we do things to ourselves either by you know, dedicating our life to the quest for money or power or fame or dedicating our life to the bottle or introducing other drugs. We do things to silence our intuition, silence our instincts, and then we can't hear what the right message is. But once we get all that cleaned out, we, you know, I think people are naturally good and they're going to do good by others Mm -hmm. and want to be in healthy relationships. And so the trick is getting there. So it's 100% a a positive evolution 
once you start to get to the good place. But it's a lot of work to get there. Yeah, and it's a lot of resources you have to search out and yeah. behaviors you need to learn and relearn because and you've patience, became, a yeah. ton of patience too. Because you've, you've developed these terrible habits. Yeah. Like, you know, just being rude. And this, I was reading um, something called like the five minute conversation, but it was just talking about how people in general, even though they are really good, we've just gotten to be a society where we're so rude to each other that we can be just so rude to our spouse by like not saying good morning or not saying good night or not saying hello when you come in or goodbye when they leave. And it's just all those little things that really kind of add up and it puts this like block between your relationship because it's like this sense of devaluing them. And we are doing it with strangers, but then we're doing it with the people that are supposed to be closest that we love and admire and respect. So I think you fall into these bad habits, you know, like you're passed out in the chair. Well, I don't say goodnight to you because I don't want to wake you up really? because I don't know what you're, you know, you if, when you were drinking. You corpse as I lay there Because <laughs> I was like, for one, you know, if you were drinking, I was like, oh, who knows what he's going to wake up to. So, you know, we just fell out of these little tiny habits that are just little nuances that you kind of have to relearn again. So, or relearn because you, or learn them because you never knew them. Yeah, it's, it's true. I mean, so recovering the relationship, improving the relationship, not just recovering it, not recovering it to where it used to be, making it better than it's ever been. It's an evolution. It's not an overnight process. It's not a quick fix there aren't five steps and it's over there aren't 12 steps and it's over it's a evolutionary process and it but it but it brings you to a better place a better place than you could have been as a moderate drinker a better place than you were as a heavy drinker and you can never get there if you can't get past the fact that the disease is what's causing all of it. The disease of alcoholism is what's what caused all the active addiction turmoil, but it's also what's causing the friction between you in in recovery because, you know, in our case and in many cases, you just flat out didn't, didn't like me very much. Right. Because of all the things we talked about, the repulsiveness, the, the lack of intelligence and the, the betrayal. And that's okay. It's okay that you didn't like me. And it's okay that we had to work through that stuff. And I just hate it when I see relationships that can't can't work through that. that or don't even make an effort to work through that. They just go, ah, no. I quit drinking. I did my part. She's a bitch. And it is what it is. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's not a good place to leave it. There's a lot of work, and the work is well, well, well worth the effort. So, and we want to help with the work. You know, we we have, it's been about a little over a month now since we started our Echoes of Recovery program. And this is all about creating connection for the loved ones of alcoholics, the ones that are the bitches, <laughs> That sounds awful because I know all these, the people in the program are not at all bitches. They are wonderful, wonderful people. But the people that are being accused of being bitches mm-hmm. by the alcoholic that's in Holding them back early recovery. 
Yeah. Yeah, Trying to control them. Yeah. So we want to give them a place to connect, to tell their stories, to hear the stories of others, to hear not just our story, me and you, Sherry, but the other people that are in the program, to build healthy instincts, um, to... And, and, and you know what? The people in Echoes of Recovery, it's not just people who have a newly sober person in their life. We, we welcome people who are not sober yet, people who are still, or the loved ones of people who are still drinking. And it's also not only for people that are determined to, to stick it out and fix the relationship. It's also for people who, where the relationship hasn't worked out. Mm-hmm. where the drinking was too much or the drinker in recovery wasn't willing to do the work. So we we want to be support for the loved ones of alcoholics. And we're frankly off to a great start. The The first four or five weeks, has uh, we've been really pleased with the response and the people that are in the program, and we want to encourage others. So if, if you're at all interested in joining us on this journey and finding recovery for, for yourself and your relationship... If you are the loved one of an alcoholic, either a alcoholic in recovery or one that's still drinking. Or if you're just, you don't even, like, it's not just for spouses. That's right. You know, we Parents have of alcoholics, parents, children of alcoholics. Yeah. Absolutely. You can find us at echoesofrecovery.com on our Intoxicated Podcast website. We'll have a link, but it's pretty easy. E-C-H-E, or E-C-H-O-E-S of recovery.com um, and we'd love to have you check us out and join us so yeah Sherry I'm so glad that it's turned out I was wrong and that you are not in fact a bitch well that's good yeah it you're fun to live with like this is awesome yeah I don't think I'd ever been called that very often you've never been called a not not a bitch no like called me a bitch I don't think that there oh. were many times where I was called that no that was in my head oh okay I didn't let that out okay good because I was thinking I don't remember like you saying that very often that would but be ironically I do remember being called it ironically by a really junk person as I was trying to take their beer out of their hand while kicking them out of the bar we worked at he went on for quite a tirade telling me how much yeah. of a bitch I was because you weren't going to tell me you'd never been called a bitch <laughs> right because I was a little ornery but yeah that was yeah. Well, that person's wrong. You're not. You're wonderful. And uh, maybe it's only drunk people that think I'm that. Yeah. Or newly sober people. But those people are wrong. It just takes a while to get there. So I think you're pretty awesome. For my wife Sherry Salus, I am Matt Salus. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast, and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>